Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 4, Episode 3. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Well, Steve, we're back after uh, an adventurous episode, your fearless predictions for retail in 2022. Great response uh, to that episode from our listeners. Now, you also, it was the companion piece, so to speak, to an article you wrote in Forbes. How was your overall response in response to your your adventurous predictions? Well, it's been good on uh, in uh, one sense in that the traffic for it was really good, and I got a lot of likes and people saying they agreed. I was, I was kind of hoping for a little bit more pushback or a little bit more dialogue, so... If you're listening to this episode and you want to come at me, feel free to reach out on social media and maybe uh, further down the road, we'll debate some of them a little bit more as the, uh, the year unfolds. All right. And uh, on this episode, we got a very special guest, Joe Kudlow, founder and CEO of activewear retailer Viore. It's a pretty remarkable story and a remarkable retailer. I, I was not aware of the brand. They don't uh, do business up here in Canada. How did you become aware of them? Uh, I heard about it through a guy named Jim Gold. Jim used to be the... Um, Oh, I worked with him at Neiman Marcus, and uh, he was the president of Bergdorf Goodman, a division we owned, and then he was elevated. I don't know, he had a couple of big jobs, president of merchandising, president of stores or something at Neiman Marcus. He has now moved on to be the CEO of, um, I think it's Moda Operandi. And uh, he mentioned it to me in a conversation like 18 months or so ago when he joined the board and said, Joe is a guy I should, I should uh, get to know at some point. And so this was our opportunity. Well, it's a great discussion. You know, it's a very active category, a very busy category, but, you know, a couple of big dominant players. And, and you would think, A, they got it, the categories had a huge tailwind thanks to COVID. But B, it's a very contested category, a lot of people in it. So it's a really interesting story of how they're finding their way in a unique proposition. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. But first and foremost, we wanted to uh, hit the high notes, so to speak, about uh, retail news. Lots going on, actually. And I guess let's start with uh, what's going on with with Kohl's, there seems to be both activist pressure and bids coming in, and they seem to be in play from what I'm reading. What, do you, what are you hearing? Yeah, this has been bumping around for a little while. Um, a couple of different investor groups, I think, have taken, taken a run at them over the last maybe year or so, and now they're, they're kind of back at it, pressuring them to sell themselves off, uh, you know, spin out their e-commerce business. A lot of different things have, have been going on. And, and, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of these <laughs> these activist plays. I, I, I still, you know, this is, I guess, a matter of, of research, which I haven't done. I will admit, perhaps one of our listeners will do it. But, you know, there's been a lot of these retail activists, retailer activist investor groups that have gone after some companies, you know, going back to, you know, Sears with Eddie Lambert and um, Bill Ackman at Pennies and uh, on and on and on. And it's not clear to me that many of these have actually ever worked out. It seems like the investors make out because they push the price up a little bit and then they bail, but it's not mm-hmm. clear to me that uh, there are many examples of them actually being super helpful to improving retailers. But I think because of the stagnant performance on these retailers stuck, as I like to call it in the boring middle, I think we're going to see more and more pressure uh, for something to happen because the returns just have not been good at, at many of these uh, retailers for quite some time. Now, speaking of uh, returns, and we're actually going to get to some pretty interesting re- numbers on returns just published from uh, the NRF. You know, Kohl's is uh, remarkable uh, for taking Amazon returns, uh, which has been a very hotly debated, uh, hotly debated tactic. But speaking of Amazon, that's my segue into talking about Amazon. The Amazon style, Amazon Go uh, moves to the burbs. Like, what's going on with uh, with that? It seems that Amazon is kind of keen on trying something in physical retail, more experimentation. I'm not sure what what or how they 
plan to measure this, but it's pretty interesting, yeah? Yeah, a couple pieces of news. So uh, you may recall one of my predictions was that Amazon was going to really double down, double click on more um, more physical moves. And pretty much right after that uh, got written, uh, they announced their uh, Amazon style store, which I think is a bit of an oxymoron for the name of their uh, their format. But this is the rumored department store that um, they will be opening the first of uh, two, I believe they've announced in California, I believe in Glendale outside of LA later this year. And it's really not quite a department store from at least the video they put out there, which maybe we'll put a link to in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really more of an apparel showroom uh, because they are not going to have merchandise on the floor. They're going to have a lot of technology involved. It sounds like they're going to be showcasing uh, many of their private brands. So I think this is, you know, it's absolutely a test. It seems like they're testing technology. They're testing their ability to uh, market their own apparel brands more. And it sounds like they're also going to have some more upscale, you know, fashion luxury sort of brands, which they've, you know, been at for many, many years and haven't had a ton of success. So mm-hmm. I think it'll be very interesting to see that when it opens. And then the other thing that got announced is they're going to open a new version of their Amazon Go store this time taking it to the suburbs. Um, people may know that the Amazon Go stores pretty much have been designed for office workers. They're, they're typically mm-hmm. kind of grab and go snacks, typically in the lobby of, a, of an office building. So this is going to be a much bigger store uh, in the suburbs of Seattle. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting just to see how that format is evolving. Again, like we always say with Amazon, you know, they try so many different things yeah. that yeah. I would not assume that the Amazon style store or this new Amazon Go store is going to be the format that they're going to roll out thousands of it. But I think they're, they're mm-hmm. continuing to uh, play around the edges with different sort of physical formats. And I think in particular, you know, they need to figure out apparel. Uh, yeah. And I think they need more physical presence also to, uh, which we'll get to a story we'll talk about in a second, you know, deal with the mm-hmm. uh, high rate of returns that they're experiencing. Let's talk about Glossier. I'm a big fan of Glossier. I made the pilgrimage there a couple of years ago to their store, just uh, on the fringes of Soho. I love the format. I literally sat in the store and just watched and kind of soaked it all in. And, and people were so, you know, they're all dressed in pink, you know, onesies basically. And, and it was <laughs> a very different format and people were so excited about it. They were excited to be there, but they've run into a bit of chop. Talk about, uh, talk about that. Well, for sure, Glossier has been one of the buzziest brands uh, of the of this new era, and they were, as we've seen with so many of these digitally native brands, they uh, were into a big physical store rollout. Uh, they ended up closing those stores during COVID, which I guess wasn't terribly surprising, but now they've announced they're cutting about a third of their staff. So... Mm-hmm. Again, this ties a little bit to one of my predictions, which is some of these brands which have you know, seemed quite prosperous, at least from the uh, PR standpoint and from a revenue standpoint and a consumer interest standpoint, many of them are really struggling with profitability. So we don't know the whole story here, but I think this certainly suggests that they are trying to figure out how to make their business considerably more profitable. They are moving back into physical retail, so... Um, you know, a lot, a lot to come there, but I think we're just going to continue to see many of these high profile brands, mm-hmm. um, just need to show that they can demonstrate profitability. There was a good article in the wall street journal with uh, their CEO, uh, Emily Weiss. And she was very upfront. She said, listen, we got distracted. I, I have to think COVID really 
um, you know, was really a barrier to their success. Who knows what what we'd be talking about today if COVID hadn't gotten the way? But she's certainly taking accountability and making quick mm-hmm. decisions. So you know, wish them best of luck. She looks like sure. a very competent, uh, very competent leader in a, a very interesting space. Let's talk about this uh, for last thing. Let's talk about this returns data that came out. Uh, NRF published some returns data that I found fairly shocking in one way. Uh, by the percentage. Now, you and I, we've been talking about this for years, literally, that, you know, as the percentage of online sales go up, returns are just going to go up as part of the mix. Returns just happen, and they happen more so in online. But I was shocked when I saw the the average, industry average for retail. I was, I was, I don't know that I was shocked, but, uh, you know, returns have just become this, this massive issue. And as we've talked about before, it is, it is not surprising because of the, just the mix issue of online. Uh, but I think because the, the numbers are getting to be so big, mm. uh, it just can't be ignored, but you know, this is a problem the industry has created, right? By making returns mm. super easy, you know, f- free shipping on returns and exchanges mm-hmm. for online orders. Uh, it just, it just kind of creates, you know, this consumer dynamic of maybe buying three, you know, and keeping one. So I, I just feel like this is an issue that just keeps getting getting elevated, and it was great to see more more tangible data. But it's hard to look at the the high rate of returns and not feel like something's got to give here at some point. Yeah, we'll put a link in in the notes to the survey. Basically, they said on average uh, it went from again industry average from ten percent to sixteen percent. That's a huge jump. Online returns were about 20%. That's not a bad average, you know, taking some things mm-hmm. online. That's, that doesn't shock me. But the 16%, wow, yeah. that's, that's, those are big dollars. And, and anyway, it's a great report. Gets into, you know, friendly fraud or fraud that's all, you know, fraudulent returns, all big component of that as well. So, so why don't we uh, now get to our great interview with Joe Cudla from Viore. We are delighted to welcome Joe Kudla to the Remarkable Retail Podcast to talk about the exciting brand that he founded and is developing. Uh, so welcome, Joe. How are you today? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, we're delighted to have you. You and I have, a, uh, I believe, a mutual connection with Jim Gold. Who uh, is he on your board? Is that right? He is. He also happens to be one of my favorite people in the world. But yes, yes, fortunate well, he- um, to have Jim on the board. Well, he's a great guy, Jim and I, as uh, some folks will know, worked together at the Neiman Marcus Group way back when, and uh, both have spent some time in Dallas. But in any event, let's talk about you. One of the things we love to do at the outset of these episodes is just ask our guests to talk a little bit about who they are, their professional journey, and then we'll we'll dig into the Viore story in just a second. Yeah, happy to. You know, I think... I'm a bit of an anomaly um, being the founder of an apparel brand. You know, I studied accounting in college and um, my first job coming out of school was supposed to be joining the audit practice at Ernst & Young. So I don't think you see a lot of those um, types ending up in such a creative field. But, you know, before I went to work for Ernst & Young, I got this really unique opportunity, slight detour, and I, I went to work as a model in Europe. I got my degree and... and I mean, we've all I, been there. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, we don't hear friends. that very often, so you got to unpack that one a little bit for us. Yeah, my, my friends still give me a hard time. It's like the the, the joke that never never goes away. Um, but it was uh, it was the, that was the moment that I kind of got a little bit of a peek behind the curtain at the at the fashion and industry, and um, definitely did not resonate with being a model. 
Um, I loved meeting people and traveling and being a young man, you know, seeing the world was, was very cool, but definitely did not resonate with being a model. But I loved watching designers create incredible products and seeing how they use textiles and color and all these things to build, bring these collections to life. That, that was very inspiring to me. And it, it was kind of the moment that I was like, man, maybe there's a creative inside me because I, all, all that I had done my, to my, in my life to date was really play sports, you know, and, and study accounting. You know, I was like, I was a very active guy, but, but never had nurtured a creative bone in my body. But after a few years doing that, um, I went back to Ernst and Young. I was ready to kind of start my quote unquote professional career. And so I begged for my job back. They had me back and, uh, I did a couple years, got my CPA license. Um, and during that time I met a girl who was a designer. She was going to fit them graduating from design school. And I encouraged her to start her own contemporary line with me. And so we, 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 that was our first kind of go at an apparel brand. And it was never really set up for success. I mean, I didn't know that at the time, obviously, but, you know, we were young kids and I learned how to make clothing and how to bring it to life, how to go out on the road, sell it to specialty boutiques. And while the business never really went anywhere, um, you know, we got some, we got the, the brand in some really good stores. It was the first time that I kind of told myself like, man, maybe I could, maybe I could do this. Um, but I was working 60 plus hours a week at Ernst and Young and there wasn't a lot of, uh, free time. Um, and then I, I decided to leave EY and I started a, a, an accounting and technology, uh, recruiting and consulting company, um, called Vaco with a couple of my really good friends at the time. And we'd built this really great business. And I, I did that for a long time. You know, I was, I was in this position where I wasn't raised with a lot of money in the household, rich in love and experiences, but, but material wealth was not something that, that my family had. And, um, and so I think I spent the first kind of half of my career chasing material wealth. Like I wanted to prove to myself that I could go out and, you know, create something and, 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 you know, acquire things and do all those things. Cause it was new to me. But after running that business with them for a, about eight years, I, I started kind of getting that, that, that creative itch. And that was about the time that I was getting into yoga. I, I really started to see the opportunity for, for Viore um, before me. And, um, and I decided to leave. And instead of kind of having one foot in, in two different worlds, you know, trying to do the, the startup while you're, you're pursuing something else during the day. I really felt like it was important for me and my personality to jump in with two feet. And so I resigned from a company that I built. A lot of people thought I was nuts, um, including my parents, but I, but I decided it was time for me to, to pursue something that was truly in alignment with my heart, my passions, my interests. And, uh, and that's when we, we launched Viore. So tell us a little bit about the beginnings of the brand, like what that I know you haven't been around that long, but maybe what the first year or two was like and then how it's evolved over the last several years. Yeah, the, the beginning of the brand was was brutal, to be honest. Um, it wasn't an overnight success. We had a real hard time raising money. I likened it to you know starting a rock band and telling your friends you're going to be the next Rolling Stones. Like It was, it was very hard to get people to believe that I was the guy who was going to go out and disrupt this massive activewear market. Um, didn't really have a track record of success in the space, wasn't a designer, really had no experience at, at any, si any sort of scale. 
um, I had some success in business through a completely different industry, but, but hard to draw the connect the dots. And so raising money was very challenging. And when we launched, you know, our whole premise of starting the brand was, you know, I, I, I've, the seed was planted for Viore in a yoga studio. You know, I had hurt my back playing lacrosse in college and I wanted to heal. And a friend suggested I try yoga. And so I was in the studio a lot. I was wearing a lot of different active wear and we saw this opportunity to build active wear differently that, that drew inspiration from, from where we lived here in Southern California, the beach, you know, we identified as beach people and out here on the West coast, there's kind of this casual, effortless, sophisticated way of dressing. And we felt like active wear brands were really following the lead of, of the big kind of brands that defined the space that have been owning it for a very long time. And as beach people, we saw an opportunity to build something with a unique point of view and an aesthetic centered around versatility. Um, and so that, that was, that was the vision for the brand. It was to come in here and do something really different, but, but, you know, we, we entered it, um, through yoga participation and we quickly found out that guys don't necessarily identify as yogis. Um, that was the first flaw in our, in our premise. And the second one was that, um, we could sell product through like yoga studios and gyms and that that would provide us enough capital and, and, and a working capital model that could fund the growth of the business into the D to C space. That was another flaw. And, and after kind of a lot of contemplation and, and talking to our customers, we, we, we decided that we needed to pivot. It was right before we were literally out of money. We changed the brand premise. We changed the messaging what we found out from our customers is that they loved the product, but they weren't using the product for yoga. They were literally doing everything else you could imagine before they were doing yoga. They were chasing their kids around the house. They were running. They were going to the gym. They loved it as lifestyle apparel. What we heard from our customers is that they loved the versatility of the brand. They loved how wearable it was. And that was always our intention, but we kind of took a yo we, we we used a yoga lens towards building the brand. So when we shifted to speaking more about the way that the customer was actually using the product and we went all in on a direct consumer strategy, meaning like we needed to go out and build our audience direct via the web, via social media. And as soon as we shifted and made those two pivots after kind of an arduous first year in business, we really started to see the engines turn and we defined that engine of growth, we were able to go back out to our friends and family and raise a little bit more capital and, um, you know, find our groove. And, 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 you know, that really set us on our trajectory towards where we're at today. It's so interesting. I mean, as you describe it, it's a real intersection of the personal and the professional, right? Coming together, it's weaving its way through your story. I mean, your life and your lifestyle is like a central character and in the narrative. So it's interesting again, as you talk about what it took to start spinning this flywheel. So let's, let's cast our mind forward a little bit. You know, the part, the the category apparel active wear has been just been on fire and, and to some degree, uh, thanks to the COVID era. And, and hopefully as we look forward to the post COVID era, how are you thinking about the, the brand, the apparel, uh, the growth in a post COVID era? And, and it is a very crowded category. It attracts a lot of attention. What do you think that, you know, what's that secret sauce that you, that, that makes that your brand stand out and spin that flywheel even faster? 
It's such a great question. And, you know, people oftentimes want to understand or they want to, they want to know if there's a, you know, some kind of a customer acquisition kind of not gimmick or, but some kind of a hook or some kind of a unique strategy. But at the end of the day, in the business of, of clothing, it all comes down to the product. You know, you, you've got to make great product. We are a group of product obsessed people and we spend so much time making unique, differentiated product that feels great, that fits great. And ultimately that is the flywheel. It's, it's making really great product. But to your point, you know, we do benefit from a lot of trends right now, right? Like performance apparel, activewear, it's, it's a growth market. And I think it, it, was, it was growing considerably prior to COVID. I think COVID was a bit of an accelerant of that trend, you know, the casualization of our country, it was happening, but Mm. definitely, um, COVID poured gasoline on on that fire. And, and now as we come out, we're finding that the brand that we really set out to build pre COVID is just resonating really deeply with how people Mm. are living their lives. You know, the, Mm. the casualization of the workplace, you know, people, the, the movement towards an active, healthy lifestyle, I think coming out of COVID people are recognizing they've got to take care of themselves. Um, they want to be active. They want to invest in their health and well-being. And I think our brand really speaks to that lifestyle very effortlessly. And, and that wasn't a pivot during COVID. That was, that was something that the brand has always spoken to really um, from its inception. So, you know, we feel really blessed. It, it's funny, you know, it was, it's a big space. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a crowded mm-hmm. space. But yeah. when we launched, you know, we saw this opportunity to carve out this niche very, very clearly. And, and mm. we felt like it was just wide open space. Um, you know, you have the big kind of brands that defined what activewear looked like, but yeah. as men, we wanted product that would carry, um, th- that we could wear throughout all of these different aspects of our life. We didn't feel like we needed to buy activewear that identified us as a guy who was going to compete in a sport or a guy who was on his way to the gym like we wanted to blur those lines. A lot of guys in Southern California were wearing board shorts to the gym because they didn't identify as a jock, you know, they didn't want to wear that shiny synthetic polyester. They wanted fabrications that looked and performed and felt a little bit more like cotton. They wanted it stripped down of all of those like unnecessary design features that don't really ultimately change your workout. And so that's what we did. We built product that was effortless. It was sophisticated. It was wearable. And you could wear it across every aspect of your life. And we prioritized fabrications that were incredibly soft. Um, mm. And we prioritized great modern fit. Um, and so it's just easy to wear. Um, and I, I guess, and so, I guess it would, would a word like versatility be on kind of the vision board, right? So, you know, that, that big idea that this is a versatile, you could, you could bike to work, bike to the office and, and wear what you bought from your organization and, and get off the bike and go to work kind of thing. Is that, is that part of your vision? 100% versatility mm-hmm. is a huge part of it. And, you know, it, it, it's funny cause now a lot of brands, you know, you'll hear versatility being a keyword in a lot of marketing um, campaigns, yeah. especially in our space. But Viore is really proud to have been a pioneer. Um, when back when we launched the business back in 2015, nobody was talking about versatility for men you know, and I grew up in a time where you were either a skater or you were a jock, you know, people wanted to be put in these boxes and surfing was counterculture. 
you know, now executives in San Diego, at least, you know, are having, you know, board meetings out in the lineup. And, you know, I think that the internet has really democratized activity and we don't necessarily put ourselves in these boxes. People today want to do it all. They're running, they're going to yoga, they're skiing, they're surfing, they're training. And, um, it's more about living an active, healthy lifestyle. I think Viore's product not only transitions from activity into your everyday life, but it works for a lot of different activities. Um, mm. So, yeah, versatility is really yeah. a key word that drives us. Well, I got a, a much better understanding of the, of the product. Let's talk about, and you and I, we were talking off mic about uh, the, your recent raise. Was it like in the $400 million area? And you were explaining off mic that uh, there, there's more behind it than the headlines, that uh, perhaps the headlines that folks have been reading haven't got the story quite right. So take us a little bit of, uh, you know, drawing on your, on your accounting background, take us for a minute or two into the, what I guess we call the capital structure. You've already chronicled how, uh, how you grew the business, but how does this money uh, factor in? How does this raise factor in? And then we can talk about how you, you know, how you expect to grow based on all of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, um, Viore is, is this, it's a unique business model, you know, in the sense that, when we were started in a garage, we bootstrapped the business. We raised two and a half million dollars of friends and family money, and we had to focus on profitability. I didn't have a big background in apparel. People were not overly willing to give us money in the early days. And so I had to build a, a working capital model that could fund mm-hmm. its own growth. And so we did that. And we did it by working with incredible factories and building incredible partnerships with them so that they could be our series A and our series B and series C instead of going back to institutional investors. And so we built a business that didn't need more capital. And even with the dynamic growth that we're experiencing, we've always focused on profitability and therefore we've, we've built the model that didn't need capital. So when, when, when we talked about, you know, people potentially getting it wrong or not necessarily just understanding um, this round, it was essentially, um, it kind of comes down to the fact that the business didn't need capital. So, you know, this was really a secondary offering, meaning it was an opportunity to reward our early shareholders. And honestly, probably one of the most proud moments of my professional career was being able to, you know, provide money back to those early friends and family and those people who believed in the business when, when not a lot of people did. So it was a, it was a really big moment um, for for everybody in kind of the extended Viore family, all of our investors and our management team. Um, but yeah, we, we were in this unique position where we, we didn't um, need the capital to grow. Um, so we didn't put it on our balance sheet. Joe, you know, it, it's, first of all, it's amazing that you've been able to, to uh, provide that kind of return to your early shareholders. One of the things I'm really interested in, and Michael and I have talked a lot about on the podcast is this idea um with uh, a lot of the digitally native brands, they they experience what I call profitless prosperity. In other words, they have these phenomenal growth stories. They get a lot of press, but as I suspect you know, a lot of them have really struggled to get to profitability, and it's not always clear whether they've got the unit economics to get there. What what is it? Can you can you provide a little bit of insight? for people that might be listening that are trying to figure out how do you create a, a powerful brand from scratch in just a few years and not fall into this trap of needing to raise so much money and spend so much money on customer acquisition and all the other things that get in the way of profitability. 
It's such a good question and it, it's a great debate. And I'm not saying that we have the best model. It worked out really well for us um, to focus on first order profitability, first order contribution margin. Um, that was always, we, we prioritized profitability over, over growth. But what we found is that by investing ultimately in making really great product that was resonating with customer, with the tailwinds of kind of the broader um, kind of psyche of the country, we were able to, to achieve both scale and profitability concurrently. And, and we feel very blessed to be in those shoes. That, and I know that that's not always the case for every brand. And there's a lot of folks out there, my heart goes out to them, but COVID was a headwind um, as, as opposed to a tailwind. Um, but, you know, for us from the early days, we just, we always were, it, we were focused on acquiring um, a customer profitably. So first order profitability. So if they never returned, we didn't lose money on that customer. We didn't re- rely on lifetime value. I think that there's a common misconception in the D2C landscape that, you know, once you acquire a customer, you don't need to pay to acquire them again. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think that that's, um, that's, that's not necessarily true. I think you have to continue marketing to your audience um, and I think that there is a cost of, of lifetime value beyond first purchase. So, um, but, you know, for us, it was always about, look, let's control what we can control. Let's make incredible product that's differentiated in the marketplace. And if we do that, we will, the, the word will get out. And, and that is what happened to Viore. If you look at like our number one um, driver of growth today, you know, it's word of mouth. And, and to the tune of close to 5x that of our investments in social advertising, paid search, you know, catalogs, television advertising, you know, we're, we pretty much are advertising across the, the, the spectrum, but number one, our number one driver is word of mouth. And I think that ultimately that type of virality is what will help a brand propel beyond these kind of ceilings of growth that a lot of t- typical D to C brands get um, get kind of stuck at and you see CPAs go through the roof, um, when you're just relying, you know, your traditional paid search, paid social, um, channels. Sure. sure. So now as I understand it, so I guess two, two questions, uh, you've, you've got several physical stores. So I'm kind of curious where physical stores fit into your growth plans and, and just in general, how you think about them. But I would also imagine, but correct me if I'm wrong, to the extent you're going to invest more heavily in physical stores, the investment characteristics start to change there. Uh, so can you just kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we love, we love brick and mortar. Um, huge fan. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not in the camp of, you know, retail is dead. You know, we've always embraced brick and mortar retail, you know, albeit very strategically, um, both from a wholesale standpoint, you know, we've, we've embraced relationships with very strategic, um, wholesale partners, and we believe that's a big part of our success story, but, but we've always had retail stores, you know, from, from our inception, we launched with a pop-up shop in our backyard of Encinitas and nobody was coming through the door. And so we had to figure out how to capture the attention of the community. And so we started partnering with local artists and other brands to bring people together and host events, um, to, uh, to support emerging artists. And before you know it, like the community was having these events for the community. It was like, we were, we were a catalyst to bring people together. And then people slowly started wearing our product around town and, 
And then we could get feedback on how that product was working for them and improve it. And, but it was, it was in the, that pop-up shop that we really learned how to be vertical retailers. And none of us really had any experience. I had, you know, worked a short stint at Abercrombie and Fitch when I was in college, but I was not a, a trained retailer, but, but it was a really great experience for us to learn how to connect with the customer and, and the data that we were able to get from those stores, observing the customer try on product, tell us what they like, tell us what they, what wasn't working. It was, and then how we engaged with the community at a really grassroots level, it was really palpable. So when, when our, when the landlord told us they were tearing down the building and we had to move out, you know, we were like, we, we have to have a store. So we signed our first long-term lease in our backyard of Encinitas. And then you know, we moved up to Manhattan Beach in Los Angeles and we opened a store there and kind of did the same thing, focused on community. How can we be in service to the community? And that's been the ethos that we've brought to all of our stores. And, and we love our stores. Like we, we could talk a lot about, you know, the data as to why stores are a great kind of, um, you know, part of a, a holistic strategy, but, but we just... Our stores have been very profitable. It, it, they do require investment. And, you know, it, we're, we're seven years in now. And so we've, we've got a balance sheet that can support the, the, the vertical retail expansion. It would have been harder to do right out of the gates. But um, now that there's awareness, you know, it's, it's just so fun to see Viore come to new markets and, and see our customers showing up and supporting us. Well, your last point, Joe, about uh, new markets, it gives us a nice segue into kind of our last question, and that's uh, what's next? I mean, it's a funny question for such a fast-moving, innovative brand. Are you looking at international expansion? I'm up here in Toronto. Maybe one day I might be able to buy your product one way, shape, or another. What's, what's next? Uh, how, do you, how do you imagine taking that business forward? And, and give, us, uh, give us a quick bit of insight on that. Yeah. I mean, we're going to continue focused on the number one thing that drives us. That's making great products. So, you know, we're launching an innovation office um, in Taipei. Um, it's being pioneered by a, a legend in the space that we're so fortunate to be partnering with. He's developed some of the best fabrics in our space. And so we're we're excited to be working with a true material scientist to bring some, some first to market innovation um, to our customers. Um, but yeah, we're, we're very bullish on vertical retail. We're going to, you know, open a hundred stores in the next five years. Um, we're, we're excited to bring Viore retail stores to the East coast. Our first store will open Mm -hmm. in Boston and in March, and then we're looking to get to open in New York in, in June. Um, so very thrilled about the expansion to the East coast and, and then we're working on our, our first store, um, abroad, um, which will be in London. And so, uh, look out for that store opening, um, hopefully this summer, um, as we launch our dot-com business. So, so much stuff going on, but right. we're just having a lot of fun, um, managing the business. Well, well, such a great, uh, such a great conversation, just l- great listening to you and, and that, that anchoring in, uh, the financials that is mixed with your creativity and, and your kind of zest for this business. It's really, really fun to listen to. So, you know, by all means, uh, you know, when you get around to it, pop up a store into Vancouver and uh, poke, poke the bear a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, due north, just due north of you there, Joe. So, you know, but anyway, listen, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on Remarkable Retail. It's, it's really, uh, really a great conversation, uh, clearly fits within our brand of talking to uh, remarkable retailers and a great story so thanks so much for making the time I'm sure it's a it's a busy time for us and uh, and 
Once again, thanks for joining us on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Michael. It was fun being with you guys. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great interviews and insights and new episodes will show up each and every week. Sure to check out our YouTube channel. And last but not least, tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and co-host of the Conversations of Commerce Next podcast, the voice of retail podcast, keynote speaker, and host of the all-new Last Request Barbecue Cooking Show on YouTube. And you can learn even more about me on LinkedIn or emmyleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone. 